Good morning, gathering family. Um, we are in Acts. You can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. That's where we'll be. Just kind of turn there and put your thumb in it, your finger in it, your neighbor's finger in it. Let me just confess to you guys that um, I had prepared almost all of this message before I was watching the news on Friday, and, and you know, I'm sitting there, I'm watching the news, and, and here's a couple things that are going through my head. One, um, wh- what do I do now? What do we do today? I mean, Phil sent me a text, you know, do we just blow the whole service up and just, what do you do? And the more I read, the more I, I thought about what I had prepared, the more I realized that not much has changed since Acts chapter 8 and what happened on Friday. I tried to process the stuff that I was feeling, tried to process the things that I was thinking, which, um, man, I, I just kept thinking, man, if that was my kid, and that was, and I was near that man. I mean, I was thinking bad thoughts about him, and then I found out he was, you know, the shooter's dead and the whole deal, and you just, you got a lot of thoughts, a lot of emotion, a lot of things going through your heart, through your mind, and so what I wanted to do was, you know, do I just chunk the whole message, or do we... Do we start to look at Acts 8 and realize how the early church actually dealt with some of the stuff that we're dealing with today? And that's what I want us to do, okay? I want us to take some time. I want us to walk through it just of four verses. Now, today you don't have note sheets. You don't have a thing to fill in the blank with a big idea. You didn't have that cute little QR code to scan with your phone. And I did it for a purpose. Here's the purpose. Today I don't want you writing. I just want you to listen. These notes will be online as soon as you get home. I just want you to listen. I want you to, to give your full attention this morning to just what I feel like God wants to say, to not just to us, but to our, our culture. So I, I feel this great um, weight of responsibility this morning to try to equip us, right? Not even so much teach you, but just to equip you. Because you're going to go out today, and you're going to sit at a restaurant, and you're going to have conversations with people. You've got family members who don't believe in Jesus. And they, I don't want to say they live for moments like this, but they use moments like this. This is what they'll use. This is their ammo now to say that what you believe is not real. That the God you serve is not a powerful God. That if he was, this would never have happened. That this, these are people who will capitalize on what just happened Friday to try to weaken our faith. And so I feel this real responsibility this morning to just try to, try to equip you, okay? I do not have all the answers, never claim to, but I believe that what we see in Acts chapter 8, the first four verses, parallels what many of us are feeling right now, okay? So are you cool with me so far? We're just going to walk through, I'm going to read it, and then we'll go back through and just kind of take our time. If I do it right, you're going to walk out of here more convinced than ever before That the Word of God is living and active. It is not a book that sits on the shelf that was written centuries ago, millennia ago, that doesn't have any bearing on our lives today. The more and more and more I study the book, the more and more I realize it is alive, it is living, it speaks into our lives today. So I want you to get your ears on. I want you to hear what the Word is saying. Acts chapter 1. 
I mean, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Him is Stephen. His, his death is Stephen. We talked about that last week. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Let's just break it apart. You ready? Here we go. Verse 1. First phrase. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. So by all accounts, especially Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul, he became Paul, as he saw right here. Saul was extremely religious, very dedicated. When you read through Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he starts to lay out all the things that he did. And he uses one word to describe himself, faultless. Like when you pick one word, like when you, if I said, hey, Tyler, describe yourself to us. You know, he like, might have a bunch of things, but if he ends it with, well, let, me look, let me just sum it up for you, Pastor Paul. I'm faultless. It takes a lot of um, fortitude, doesn't it, <laughs> to come up with that answer? Paul did that. I mean, it's written in the Word. He described himself that way. So Saul here, he is a deeply religious man. And yet in this one verse, not only is he a religious man, but I hope I'm okay saying this, he's a monster. I mean, we're watching the news and we're hearing about a 20-year-old that would walk into a school and shoot a bunch of kids. And we're saying words like that, aren't we? That's a monster. Who does something like that? Saul, that's who does something like that. Saul does something like that. He not only approves of the stoning of Stephen, but he's willing to hold the coats of those who are doing the stoning. We live in a world with men who have willingly turned their hearts away from a saving and a redeeming God. Now, what's the good news in there? That even a man who was such a monster that he would stand there and give the approval to the murder of a man like Stephen, God redeemed. God can redeem. We say it all the time. If you're breathing, you're redeemable. If you're breathing, God can redeem you. He can redeem our lives. Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. And here's why. Do you know why a great persecution broke out? Because the church, even in its early days, was choosing comfort over conquering. And who can blame them? Put yourself in the, early, in, in the shoes of the early church. You got this church is growing. We've been studying it, right? Thousands of people are coming to, know, coming to know Jesus. They're starting to follow him. Church is expanding. More houses having community groups. It's an awesome, awesome thing. And then you start to ride the ups and downs of the roller coaster, right? We've looked at that. And we just came through an incredible downturn. So God says, choose seven men from among you. Full of the wisdom, full of the spirit. Let them start to go serve and wait on tables. And so one of those people that's waiting on tables, his name is Stephen. And then he gets arrested for doing the good things that God told him to do. 
And he stands in front of people who falsely accuse him. He chooses not to defend himself, but rather to point to Jesus. And as he's pointing to Jesus, he gets killed. And not only does he get killed, but he gets killed by a bunch of people who have the approval of a monster who then becomes, we'll see in a few verses, the person who is the one person mainly in charge of harassing and destroying the Christians of the early church. Now, you're in that environment, and while you're seeing all this stuff go on, in the back of your mind you're thinking, but didn't Jesus tell us to go out and tell people about Jesus? And what do you do? You pull your kids close, you step back, you close the door, you lock it, and lock it, and lock it, and one more time. You pull the blinds, and you say, I'll just pray that somehow Jesus is revealed to a world that I am too scared to go into. They're no different than we are. I, I followed Facebook. I followed Twitter as all the news was coming through. And I saw the same posts over and over and over. You know what was happening on, on Friday? There were, there were expectant couples that were asking this question. Why would I bring a kid into a world like this? There were parents, I'm one of them, that were looking at our kids going, why would I ever want to send my kids out into a world like this? I mean, is that fair to say? Is that honest enough that when we see a monster act like a monster act on Friday, our first inclination is not, hey, let's go. It's, whoa. I just want, you see posts all over Facebook, hug your kids, hold your kids. Yo, that's good, right? We want to hug our kids, but we don't want to hold them so close that we would never, ever, ever, ever let them leave. I mean, what God does not want to come out of Friday is for us all to grow up to have 50-year-old kids still living at home. Can I get an amen from the parents in the house? But that's our inclination. And it was no different in the early church. There had to be persecution. It was the only way for God to get the church to go out. Let's unpack some emotions, can we, that we're dealing with. This may be um, a little too honest for some of you, and if it is, I'm sorry. It's good to have you at the gathering. Hope you'll come back. But when I kept thinking, because Sydney's, Sydney's 10, um, so she would have been just the oldest of the children at that school, I mean, I love Parker and Will, but they wouldn't have been there. Um, but I kept thinking about Sydney, and what if she'd have been there, and what if this had happened to her? And, and I'm going to tell you, I start, I'm, a pretty, I'm a pretty laid-back guy. But if somebody had done that to my daughter, there would be a lot of blood. I don't even know if I would have felt bad about it. I would have just literally, I would have gone off on that person probably would have killed them with my bare hands and then just walked into the police station and said, arrest me. I mean, I was crying, ticked off, every range of emotions. And you're sitting there going, but I'm in North Carolina. This didn't affect me. Man, it affected me. I mean, I was ticked. One, that he would do it to any kid. But when I started putting myself in that position... 
I kept thinking about vicious and bloody and extremely unchristian feelings that I was having towards this man. And here's what I want. I want to set you free. Can I do that? You can write this down later and you can put it on Facebook and Twitter. There are no Christian emotions. Only human ones. There are, however, Christian responses to those human emotions. If you sat and watched the news on Friday and you wanted to jump through the TV set and shoot a man who was already dead just to make him feel a little bit more pain for what he did, that doesn't make you unchristian. It makes you alive. It makes you a human. Now, if you did it, we have another conversation. Because that's not a Christian response. You will hear people all over your world this week talk about how mad they were, how sad they were, how if I could, I would have done this, and I could have done this, and I just, ugh. And you're going to be tempted to try to have a Christian emotion to go along with the unchristian emotion that your friends might have. There isn't one. There are no Christian and unchristian emotions. There are only Christian and unchristian responses. That's the real issue. Not that we don't feel the same things that unbelievers may feel, but that we don't act or respond the same way that unbelievers will. Verse 2 it says that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Never forget this. Never forget this. Following Jesus does not exempt us from the pain of being human. Godly people bury people. Ever been to a funeral of somebody that you love? Godly people bury people. Godly people mourn. For people you can't love Jesus enough to get out of that look this is you'll hear this a lot from me I believe this is one of the worst teachings that we have in the Christian church today that somehow if I just read enough of the Bible if I just believe enough in Jesus if I just do enough of the things he says I will never have to experience hurt and pain and it is a lie from hell and he will Satan will fill your mind with, oh, see, if you really love Jesus, then that wouldn't happen to you. I don't want cancer. Apparently, it plagues humanity, not just the bad humanity. There is a price that we pay for living in a world that we have willingly turned back over to Satan. You can't love Jesus enough to get out of the reality that godly men bury men. And that's not a good sell, is it? I mean, none of you are tweeting that. Godly men bury men. I want to be a godly man. But if I said, like, godly men win the lottery, oh, we're all over that. I mean, some of you women are getting a sex change just to win the lottery. I want to be a godly man. <laughs> We're all over that. You don't have to get the sex change. It's men and women. I'm just messing with you. be a really awkward Sunday school class at a church, wouldn't it? 
It isn't a sign of sin. It's not a sign of lack of faith. It's not a sign of anything else. It's a sign of being alive. We bury people. So here's what we do, church. We mourn. We mourn deeply. These godly men, they mourn deeply. They mourn without apology. Now, some of you are still stuck back on the cancer thing. Some of you are still stuck on the fact that, wait, are you saying I can serve Jesus and still have stuff happen to me that's not good? Yeah. Yes. Yes. See? We could get really prideful. I could start to say to you, um, Hey, let's just line our lives up next to one another. And let's just see who's been living more with Jesus, me or you. Maybe you win. But I've been walking with Jesus a long time. I'm not perfect, but I'm telling you something. As much as I know how to love him with my heart, I love him with my heart. And I have had crap in my life. And don't come to me and say I had it because I wasn't serving Jesus. Because I was. And if it's not enough for that... Let's at least talk about the perfect man who ever walked the face of the planet. His name was Jesus. And even he got in a garden on his knees and sweat to the point of bleeding, which I don't, I've never done that. I, I don't know. I don't want to see that. Like, if any of you ever sweat to the point of bleeding, don't even call me up and don't take a picture. Don't send it to me by text. Don't do it. I don't want to see it because I'll puke. It just sounds gross, right? But he's the son of God. Perfect, sinless, and even he said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me because I don't want to do this. This is painful. And if Jesus was not exempt from it, then there's no way that you and I are. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply. The Mishnah, uh, that's a really cool word. It's just the first written collection. They had like, the Jews had like the written Torah, which was all the laws. And then they had oral commentary. So what they had was like all these laws. And then people would talk about what those laws meant. And then somebody realized, wait, if we just keep talking about it, somebody's going to forget what we said. Maybe we should write this stuff down. So they took the Torah, which was already written, they took all the commentary and they put it all together in one big book and they called that the Mishnah. Just so you know, you win Jeopardy someday, right? Now, what is Mishnah? The Mishnah allowed Jewish men to bury and to mourn, but it did not allow them to mourn with great lamentation. So what these men did, when it says they mourned deeply in the King James and the New American Standard, you'll see that they mourned with great lamentation. They broke the law. That's how much they were hurting over what happened. These men grieved. We grieve. But we can not grieve without hope. First Thessalonians 4.13 says that we grieve with hope. So grieve. Grieve with hope. Grieve with tears. Grieve with wailing. Be an ugly crier. How many of you are ugly criers? I'm an ugly, I mean, some people are like, they, they just cry, and you're just like, that's so beautiful. Dude, not me. Like, when I'm really crying, 
I mean, I might as well be doing the whole blood thing because it's pretty nasty. But like, but if I'm really grieving, I'm really crying, like, you know, you got the tears, which is obvious. But at some point, the tears are mixed with sweat that comes from every pore of my face. And then, like, then the snot, which, like, if you got that little snot trail on your nose, and that's what that is. You know that, right? That little ridge. It's just a snot trail from your nose to your mouth. It's just disgusting. And if you're really, really grieving, you don't even care. And so you're like in a room with people. I've prayed for people before that were so broken that when they got up off the, the carpet, like they had stuff hanging. And you're like, dude, and they're like, I don't care. I care. Wipe your nose. <laughs> right? Even if you're an ugly crier, mourn deeply. Being a Christian, I want you to get this, being a Christian doesn't mean we stifle grief. It means we sanctify it by recognizing that it isn't greater than our Lord's power to comfort us. One more time. Being Christian doesn't mean we stifle grief. It means we sanctify it by recognizing it isn't greater than our Lord's power to comfort us. Now think about it. In your deepest grief, Whatever happened in your life, maybe it didn't even come close to what happened Friday to those kids. But in your deepest, darkest places, the minute that we start to grieve as if it's too great for even Jesus to heal us from, we have made grief our God. And we can no longer grieve with hope. Because what is the hope that we have? The hope that we have is not that those won't burn and catch on fire, but the hope we have is that Jesus came into a world. He came. And he's greater than this world. And because he's greater than this world, he's greater than the stuff that happens in our lives. And as bad as Friday was, someday those families will realize that he's even greater than that. That's the hope that we have. Sanctify your grief. Okay, verse 3. A couple more. But Saul began to destroy the church. Uh, the this is the specific information that was referred to in verse 1 when it said a great persecution broke out. This is the great persecution. Saul starts to destroy the church. He was responsible for most of it, and the word for destroy here, it's a really sweet, quaint Greek word. No, it's not. It literally means an animal ripping another animal apart. That's ugly. That's violent. That's dark. And when did it happen? Some of you are going to relate to this, even if you don't follow Jesus, just because you're living. You ever feel like you can't catch a break? Um... Like in our lives, when, in a, when we feel like that, it, it, usually, it usually deals with finances, right? Um, you know, you, you get a bill, like, God, we weren't expecting that, and so you pay it. And then the next day, the air conditioner doesn't work. Oh, God, are you kidding? So you get that fixed, and then you're sitting there enjoying the nice air conditioning, and all of a sudden, like, you know, something else doesn't work. Like, when did the TV stop working? Oh, man. And you get in the car to go get the new TV, and the car won't start. Yeah, I mean, you ever had those things happen? It's like one thing after the other after the other. And then, like, really, with tragedy, and so you'll hear people all the time talking about they always come in threes. See, we know this, right? Just from living, we know this. 
So you understand what's going on in the early church. Saul began to destroy the church. And when did he do that? He did it at the same time that godly men were burying and mourning. They can't catch a break either. It was raining, it started to pour, and it was happening to godly men. How did Paul do it? He went from house to house. It says going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. He went house to house. This is not quite like, you know, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, right? Saul's like knocking on the door. You open it, hello? He's got like the nice white shirt and the tie but also like a weapon to kill you. It says that he goes house to house. He drags off the women. He drags off the men. The word for dragged off, um, this was not like reading you your rights. This was the same word that the Bible uses to describe Satan when he fell from heaven, and it says that he, with the, he, he uh, swept a third of the angels. That word for swept, which does not sound like hey, y'all come with us now, does it? It sounds more like, you're mine. And that's the same word that's used here. That's how Paul, he was going from house to house, dragging, sweeping. It's a dark, it's a demonic action. And it was done to men and women. It was so bad, it was so violent, that later in his writings when he had become Paul, and he was writing two-thirds of the New Testament, a number of times he makes reference back to this time in his life. Even going so far in 1 Corinthians 59, he said this, the reason he wasn't qualified to be an apostle was because this is what he had done. He said, I'm the least of the followers and not even qualified to be an apostle because I persecuted the church. I don't know what's in your closet. I'm guessing mass murder is not one of them. Paul, when he was Saul, was a violent, evil monster of a man. I was reading and some scholars actually said this. Um, they think, have you ever heard that people get mad in you or what they hate in themselves? Have you ever heard that? Um, I this goes, this dates me, this goes way back, but I remember when, um, when Jim Baker fell at PTL and Jimmy Swaggart got on the, the TV and he just was railing against Baker for like the sexual sin and how can you, and just, he was angry, he was just all over him. And it was like a month or two or a year later, they found out that Swaggart had done the same thing. Reading um, when Nathan accuses, um, accuses King David. Of, of sleeping with Bathsheba. But he doesn't go in and say, hey, you've been sleeping with another woman. He goes in and tells them a story about a little lamb and how somebody had all these, all these sheep, but this one guy had one, and he took the one and stayed using his. And David gets mad. The Bible says literally that David burned against that man. And then Nathan turned around and said, but you're the man. See, we hate in others what we hate in ourselves. And a lot of scholars believe that the reason that Saul was so violent against the church it's because he was so conflicted about the truth that he heard Stephen preach in chapter 7. He stood there, and yeah, he gave approval to his death, but he kept, he kept thinking about what he had heard. And he's like, wait, maybe that's true. I, I can't be true. I've I got I to get rid of that. And so he just took it out on the church. 
You got jerks in your life? Let me see your hands. You got jerks in your life? Come on, be proud. I got jerks in my life. You got people in your life that persecute you for your faith? Raise your hand. They, they, I mean, now, you're, now see, you're, you're hesitant to raise your hand because you're like, well, by persecuted, do you mean like kill me with a sword? Like, the, no, I just mean they ever mock you for your faith? Raise your hand. Yeah, you got people like that. Now think about this. Is it possible that they are the closest to salvation of anybody you know? And that is why they react so negatively towards your faith. Sometimes those who react the most violently against the truth are in fact the ones most tormented by it. It is not our job to picket them, but to pray for them. Matthew 5, 44. Last verse, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word. Those who had been scattered. Those who had been scattered. Everybody say scattered. I love to eat at Waffle House. Every time I read that verse, I think about Waffle House. How do you want your hash browns? Um, smothered and scattered. And then they're like, you know, smothered, scattered, chunked, spit in, whatever. You know, they just make all kinds of stuff up. Every time I read that verse, I think of Waffle House. Those who had been scattered, how were they scattered? We already know, right? Persecution. Why was that necessary? Because no one would choose to go into the world where Saul had free reign. Would you? If you knew there was a man like Saul who had free reign, would you go into the world? There's only one person I can think of that entered a world like that. His name is Jesus. Philippians 2 says that he willingly chose to enter a world that would hate him and kill him. I tweeted this the other day, and it got a lot of retweets. Here's what it said. We ask where God is in tragic times, and the message of the cross screams loudly that he is in the middle of it. I serve a God who does not run from Friday. He runs to Friday. The message of the cross is that he did not stay away from human pain, but he entered human pain. I serve a God like that. He is the only one who willingly entered the war. The hope of the gospel is that we have been saved from the paralyzing label of victim. Don't raise your hand. But if statistics are true, many of the women in this room have been sexually abused. Many of the men in this room are addicted to pornography. Many of us in this room have felt the sting of divorce. All of us in this room could, if we wanted to, quit trying and simply wear a shirt that says victim. Many do. So I want you to hear this, because this is powerful. The message of the cross, the message of the gospel, is that Jesus is at once both the victim of and the victor over the injustices of humanity. 
He is at once a victim of and a victor over the injustices of humanity. And what are we all saying about Friday? That's not fair. Who lets that happen? How can that happen? Not to children. It's horrible. And it is. But I serve a God who was subjected to that. He was subjected to injustice. He died the victim of it. He rose the victor over it. That's the God that we serve. The Savior who would overcome the greatest of injustices spoke to his followers in John 20, 21, and he told them this, my peace I give you. And they went, sweet, I love peace. I love me some peace. Give me some more peace. He said, my peace I give you. And if he'd have just stopped there, wouldn't that have been awesome? Does anybody in here know what comes after that? John 20, 21, when he said, my peace I give you. See, right now you're thinking about another verse in John. It says, not as the world gives and in my house and in my father's house. No, 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 no. John 20, 21 says, my peace I give you. As the father has sent me into the world, so I'm sending you. And it's at this point that we find ourselves pushing back against the command because we fear the world that he sends us into. And this is why great persecution broke out against the church. It was to force them to do what they were not going to choose to do. Did you understand that? They were not going to choose to go out. I, I wrote this down. Let me just make this statement. I'll try to explain it. The Christian life is not made up of simple choices as much as submitted choices. See, we, we, make, we do you guys a disservice. Let me explain it. Preachers, we think if we're good enough, if we communicate best, if we're really awesome and we tell funny stories, if we can make you understand it, then you will do it. But that's not true. Because the things that the Bible calls us to do, they're not simple choices. Heck, they're not even smart choices. Hey, God wants you to take your children and send them to another country to tell people about Jesus. That's not a smart choice. But it's a gospel choice. And the only way that you're going to do that is if you, if you submit your choice. Okay, God, I don't want to do that, but it's not about me. It's not about my family. It's about your kingdom. They're not simple choices. If I just teach enough on money, you'll start to tithe. Really? Because I think the church has been taught about money a lot. And still, most pastors, if they can just get like 8% of their people to tithe, they're pretty happy about that. I'm not. Because I don't like having 92% of my people sinning. Because it's not a choice up here. It's a choice here. The Christian life is not about Simple choices. It's about submitted choices. So we take evangelism. How many of us, let me just show hands. I'm not, it's not a trick question. I'm not trying, trying to make you feel bad. How many of you believe truly that the Bible's clear that we're supposed to tell the world about Jesus? Raise your hand. I mean, every hand's going to go up, right? But now, 
if I did actually ask you to raise your hands, and I won't because I'm nice to you and I don't want to embarrass myself either, <laughs> but if I asked you how many of you have shared Jesus with somebody in the last week, some hands would go up, but not as many as just went up. And if I said in the last day, maybe one, maybe two. So we know it, but we don't do it. Because it isn't a simple choice. You can't just sit here and say, today I decide to be an evangelist. It's a heart choice. Wendy and I learned that through all of our stuff. I've told many of you this. I always thought forgiveness was just a simple choice. Oh, you know, Michael made me mad. I forgive him. It's, it's a spiritual act. It's a submitted choice. I don't want to forgive. I want to hit you. It will make me feel better. And it'll be momentary, and then I will hit you again so I can feel better again. And we'll just keep doing that. That's why some of you have said, I thought I forgave. But I thought I forgave. But I thought I forgave. No, you forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive. It's a spiritual act. It's a submitted choice. The Christian life isn't made up of simple choices, but submitted choices. Telling people about Jesus is not simple. It's a spiritual act. It is the response to the command of our Savior. He said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And it's just that sometimes, and I don't understand why this happens, but sometimes God sends us by putting a tack in the chair. I did that when I was in the ninth grade. And I don't know why, they, why do guys do this? Like, in your, when you're in the ninth grade, if you like a girl, you hurt her. What's up with that? I don't get that. I really think you're awesome. Bam! I don't understand, but there was this girl that sat in front of me in ninth grade, and I just thought she was the cutest girl that God had ever created. She was awesome looking, and I wanted to get her attention so badly. I just wanted her to notice me. And so I put a tack in her chair. Wouldn't you? I got... That's all I had. I mean, I, I, maybe I need to take a course on, like, how to talk to girls. But I was scared to talk to her, and I just thought, I'll just put a tack in her chair. And I, it got her attention. It didn't work the way I'd hoped, right? I think I ended up saying something like, who put that there? <laughs> you know? But see, sometimes that's, sometimes that's how God sends us. We're like, God, I'm watching the news, and... I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to really live in a world where a man can do that. And I really don't want to go in a world and tell a man like that about Jesus. I'm just going to sit here. Ow! Persecution arose, and it says they had been scattered. Sometimes he sends us that way because he knows this. This is the big idea for today: the comfortable will never conquer. The comfortable will never conquer. I, I thought about entitling this message The End of the Cactus Couch Company. Because I've never seen a cactus couch company. Have you? Because who's buying a cactus couch? I did Google it. There are a few pictures of a cactus couch, but they're not real cacti because... 
they're felt like the, the things that stick up to look like the prickly things are just felt. So once you sit on them, they'll just fall down. But, like, can you imagine making a real couch out of a real cactus and then trying to sell that to somebody? Nobody reclines on a cactus couch because you can't be comfortable on a cactus couch. God is not about you being comfortable. He has called us to be more than conquerors. And the comfortable will never conquer. We're called to change a culture that is radically opposed to the lordship of Jesus. And not many of us will feel like entering a danger zone to do that. We get saved. We get comfortable. Even if we wanted to reach the lost, we fear for our safety. And just like the early church, we pull back. And that's when God kicks us from the nest. Thanks, God. We always think God's like, go. Y'all ever watch Monsters Incorporated? The fun stuff at the end. Go. Go throw up. Yeah, I love that. We think that's how God is. Now go. And maybe he does, but I think sometimes he's kind of like, go. A great persecution arose. They were scattered. He scattered the early church. He still scatters us today. And here's the part I want you to get at the very end. They preached the word wherever they went. Did you catch that? They preached it wherever they went. What they did never changed. Where they did it was always changing. Many of us are waiting to be in the right place at the right time in order to speak the right message. Here's the good news. You're already there. Just preach. Wherever they were, they preached. When I get a better job, when I get a better paycheck, when I get a better fill-in-the-blank, then I'm going to start preaching. Mm, no. Wherever you are, just preach. Just share the good news. It wasn't the apostles. I want you to get that too. It wasn't just about Sundays. It says back in verse 1 that all of them were scattered except the apostles. And so I, I'm, I'm like reading this stuff and I'm studying it. I'm like, why didn't the apostles go? Nobody knows. Nobody, can, nobody knows why the apostles didn't go. But here's the good news for me and for you. It's not about the elite. It's just about us. It's us. The evangelism of the world is not the weekly work of a few men of God, but the daily work of the people of God. Wherever they went, let me ask you this question. This would be a good thing for you to talk about over lunch. Where are you? Man, Eugene preached a couple weeks ago on the place. Where's your place? Where are you right now? My guess is you're not like floating on a cloud eating gummy bears, right? You're working in a cubicle going, God, get me out of here. Please, just drop the hook. I'll attach it and pull me up. But according to this, you're right where he wants you to be because wherever they were, they didn't spend a lot of time praying about that. Was well, this where I'm supposed to be? They just preached. Where are you? They preached the word. Will you preach the word? So what do we take away from these four verses? Here's a couple statements just for you to kind of hang your hat on. We are the children of God, saved by the Son of God, sent out to preach the word of God. 
How we got where we are isn't nearly as important as what we'll do for Jesus where we are. And it's okay to feel deeply the emotions common to man as long as we remember that we have a hope that is not common to man. We are called to be conquerors. And if we pull back, even in times of sadness and fear and danger, we will grow comfortable. And the big idea today warns us that the comfortable will not conquer. So the kick in the pants, the tack in the chair, the cactus couch, we hate them. But they're all blessings because they result in each one of us going to do what we would never have chosen to do on our own, seeking and saving the lost. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this message. God, I thank you for your word, that it is living, that it is active. I thank you that, that, that we could study it today, words that were written years ago, and they are so relevant to where our country is right now. And we are in a country that wants to pull back. And God forgive us, but even in the church, we want to pull back. We, we, we are, it scares us. The world is a scary place at times. And yet that does not exempt us from the, the, the call by you to go. And we see it, God, here. And I, I pray that you would make us to be faithful men, just like what we read about in verse 4. That wherever we end up, wherever we are scattered to, God, we would preach the gospel. We would share with people who are hurting the truth that we serve a God who did not stay up in heaven but came willingly, God, into the mess, stepped into the crossfire so that he might save us from it. You are not a God who withdraws from pain. The cross is clear. You are in the middle of it. And you are saving us from it. And we thank you for it. In your name, Jesus. Amen.